This evening's reading is John chapter 13, verses 1 to 21. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That it was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Please turn back in your Bibles 
John chapter 13, and I'll lead us in prayer as we turn back to God's Word. Father in heaven, we praise you that your Word is a sure rock, a foundation on which to build life, a foundation on which to build death and eternity. And we pray tonight you'd help us to hear your voice and listen and be changed by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're picking up the reading on page 900 from verse 31. Judas has just left to betray Jesus. So John chapter 13, verse 31. And when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the cock will not crow till you've denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have told, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Well, good evening and a happy new year, actually, because I haven't yet been up front um, since we started the year. I think it's just about still time where you can think about the year ahead. It's only two weeks into January. And it's my prayer that just as the motto series in the mornings is kind of setting a vision for our church family I think this evening series in John is going to be a great complement to that. This is a series where Jesus prepares people for the time he's not physically walking around on earth. Let me say that again. This series, this section in John, is a time when Jesus prepares people for the period of history when he's not walking around physically on earth. And it's a wonderful section. It's full of reassurance But I wonder if you're looking in on Christian things, if that's a bit of a surprise to you. Because the the kind of popular um, view sometimes, the notion is that the historical record of Jesus is that he was a a kind of popular rabbi, very promising, and then came to a kind of tragic and untimely, unexpectedly uh, short life. It was kind of cut off in his prime. But actually, the best historical records we have show that Jesus didn't understand his death as 
unexpected or untimely. He knew it was coming. He knew when, he knew where. All four Gospels have that, when and where he's going to die. And so he prepares his disciples for it. Prepares them for the moment when he'll disappear. In fact, here in John's eyewitness account, in chapter 13, we step into the very room where Jesus is having his final meal. It's Thursday night. The darkness of Good Friday is beginning to loom large. It's a very precious and and intimate occasion. Jesus' final chance to prepare his followers for the storm that's coming. And he doesn't just prepare them for his death or even for his resurrection, even for his return to the Father. He prepares them for the next bit, the time when he's not around. So if you've ever wondered, why didn't Jesus just stay on earth after the resurrection? Live forever down here. Why? If you've wondered, why was it better for Jesus to go back to the Father, which is what he says later on, If you've wondered, what are we supposed to be doing while we wait for Jesus to return? Well, this is a section and a series that should answer all of those questions in the coming weeks. And they're not just intellectual questions, are they? Deeply personal, those questions. They were for the disciples. Some of us here may may feel sometimes uncertain, troubled, unsettled that Jesus isn't walking around Edinburgh in the flesh. Perhaps you wish he'd never left. Wouldn't that be so much better? Well, this series is for us. Jesus loves his followers enough to give good answers to those questions before he goes. Just look at the tone with which the conversation starts down in in verse 33. That's where he drops the bombshell, verse 33. Just look at how he starts. Little children, yet a little while I'm with you. The bombshell is, I'm going away. The tone is, little children. My closest followers, my beloved friends, this isn't going to be a theological lecture. This is an intimate conversation. And of course, when Jesus says he's going away, the questions start piling in. Simon Peter's first, he usually is, verse 36. Lord, where are you going? And then, can I come too? And then on into um, chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas will say, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And then the questions carry on. Philip, in chapter 14, verse 8, show us the Father, and then Judas, the other Judas, in 14.22. When Jesus announces he's leaving, it becomes a Q&A session as his disciples ask questions like, what, do you, what? what do you mean you're leaving? Where are you going? Can we come? And Jesus patiently and lovingly gives them answers. He's preparing them, preparing them and us for the time when he's not around physically. You'll see on the service sheet on the back, there's an outline of where we're going. And we'll actually spend almost all our time on the first point, so don't panic about the second two. Um, But I put a question at the top, which I think is, is the big one kind of underlying all the questions. It's hanging in the air. What on earth are we to do until Jesus returns? In this period of Jesus' physical absence, what on earth are we supposed to do? It's a great question to be thinking about. We're living in this period that's being talked about. We need to know what we're supposed to be doing. I think the disciples would be asking that question just with a sense of panic. 
what on earth are we going to do without Jesus here with us physically? And for them, there'll be all sorts of reassurance. Great promises in this section. Let not your hearts be troubled. Later on, I will not leave you as orphans. If I go and prepare a place, I'll come back and get you. Amazing promises to come. But, but actually, probably the biggest thing he lets them in on is the divine plan. So he's going to the cross. He's going to rise from the dead, and then return to the Father. And when he gets there, he will send his Spirit. And that is the highlight of the section. I will come into your hearts by my Spirit. And it's not just he won't leave them powerless, he'll give them the Spirit. He won't leave them purposeless. He'll give them a job to do, to be witnesses in this world. So there's the big question. What on earth are we to do until Jesus returns? How would you answer that? What are we to do until Jesus returns? It's good if churches have an answer for that. Maybe you think, if you're listening this morning, I know, we are God's household, the pillar of truth. We're to hold up God's truth to a watching world, and that's true. Maybe you were here last term, and Matthew told us we're to make disciples, teaching them what Jesus has taught us. And that's true. We're to put God's gospel treasure on display. But just look at the job Jesus gives us here in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, so you're also to love one another. That's the key directive he gives. Straight after announcing his departure, he says, right, you're to love one another until I get back the way I've loved you. That's our big point tonight, if you remember nothing else, if you, if you need to switch off now, this is the point. Christians are to love one another the way Jesus has loved us. Christians are to love one another the way Jesus has loved us. Now notice that's not unconnected with our mission to, to spread the good news to the lost. Just look at how he goes on, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. So actually, Christian witness and Christian love, they reinforce each other. We're to tell people of Jesus' love, and we're to model that love within our church family. The two go together. That means it's, it's deeply sad when, when a church or a movement becomes so outsider-focused that it takes an eye off Christians loving and supporting and serving each other, forgets to, to say that Christians building each other up is important. We need each other. We need mutual care. We need the building up of church. But the flip side sometimes happens that a church can focus entirely on fostering great community and forget that this community is supposed to be sharing God's good news of Christ to the world around. Church can become a a great social club for the insiders. And 1 Timothy in the mornings and John in the evenings will be stopping that. It's a both and. We're to love each other the way Jesus has loved us. But in doing that, we'll be modeling the gospel and speaking the gospel to the world around us. It will strengthen our witness to a watching world, not distract from it. And this big command, I mean, it's pretty simple, isn't it? I mean, in terms of words, it's understandable. Love each other as I love you. Very straightforward. But of course, how has Jesus loved us? 
gets a bit more complicated and difficult when you think about that. And that's what we're going to think about for most of our time. How has Jesus loved us? How has Jesus loved you? If you're a Christian, how has he loved you? How's he loved me? Because the more we get that, the more we'll understand how we're to love each other and be motivated too. To get our heads around how Jesus has loved us, we need to get our bearings a little bit in where we are in John's Gospel. This is a moment in the story where Jesus' love is beginning to take center stage. Um, So just look back to where the reading began. It's this dramatic moment when Judas has just left. Jesus handed him bread. He, he He gave a tip off to one of the disciples that the person he handed the bread to would be the betrayer. He's handed the bread to Judas told him to get on with it quickly, verse 27. And so, verse 30, Judas, after receiving the morsel of bread, he went immediately out, and it was night. John's literal comment, he was an eyewitness, and symbolic comment. It doesn't get much darker than being betrayed by your closest friend to the invading armies of Rome and the hypocritical um, religious secret police. It was night. But look at Jesus' comment in verse 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. It's a really odd moment. Just think about that sentence for a moment. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed. Events are heading rapidly there. Uh, He knows exactly what Judas is doing. The night is closing in. And at that moment, when he's gone to tip off the secret police, Jesus says, Right. This is the glory moment. This is where God's glory is about to shine most brightly. It's really surprising. Jesus is about to be arrested, sham tried, tortured, crucified. Sounds like a disaster. Jesus says, this is the moment you'll see God's glory most. Why? What's going on there? Well, because consistently John's Gospel is teaching that The cross of Jesus is where you see the glory of God, most clearly, most brightly. The cross is the hour, in John's terms, where where Jesus the Son and God the Father are glorified. Why? Because there you see love, proper love, God's glorying love, God's love, like it's never been seen before. Do you remember John 3, 16? For God so loved the world a world that rebelled against him, betrayed him. He so loved the world that he gave his son to the cross. Or John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. In the darkness of this betrayal and the cross, God's love shines most brightly. So if you want to know how to love each other, we need to look at the cross. Just look at how chapter 13 begins for more on this. John says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. You see, again, John's flagging. The climactic moment is coming. But what does he draw attention to? Jesus' love. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. The cross shows God's love, sets the standard by which we're to love one another. 
one of the conversations from university I most vividly remember, with regret actually, is when I was sitting with a fairly intimidating tutor. She was not a fan of Christianity at all, and she was trying to slightly pick me apart and say the Bible doesn't agree with itself, like it contradicts itself. And one of the things she said was, look, Jesus says this commandment is new, so, so therefore the Old Testament can't be about love. If Jesus says this is a new commandment, to love each other, then how can you say that the Old Testament taught that God's people were to love one another? And I'm sad to say at the time I didn't actually have a good answer. I was just, I don't know, sorry. <laughs> but actually, the thing that's new is not the command love. That has been running all the way through the Bible. The thing that's new is the standard of love. Does that make sense? We're about to see the cross, Jesus says. You're about to see how I really love you. And when you see that, it sets a whole new bar for what love looks like in any church family, in any Christian relationship. But actually, Jesus doesn't just teach about love in chapter 13 and about the cross. He models it in a kind of acted-out parable. That's why we had the first reading about the foot washing. It's a kind of illustration, an acted-out illustration of what the cross is going to be. So we're going to spend a few minutes just reflecting on some of the things that come through as you look at the foot-washing uh, acted-out parable, and then how they show us the, deep, the depth of God's love at the cross. So that will be points A, B, C. And again, this is where most of our time will go. So in our reading, did you pick up verse 4? how Jesus takes off his jacket, grabs a towel, rolls up his sleeves, and washes his disciples' feet. And again, that is an amazing moment. I think with some of these familiar stories, if you're used to John, we, we can kind of sentimentalize them, almost like he gives them a foot spa, kind of one last nice bonding experience. But it's nothing like that. He is getting rid of the accumulated muck and dust and filth that you pick up walking around open-toed in first century Israel. This job was menial, it was smelly, it was reserved for slaves. The thought of a host, a master, a lord doing this is scandalous. It's a scandal. You can see it's a scandal because of Peter's reaction in verse 6. Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And then verse 8, he gets a bit stronger. Lord, you shall never wash my feet. There's no way you're going near the filth that's on my feet. You're the Lord. How could you be the one cleaning my feet? But then Jesus says, the reality is, anyone who wants to serve me must be washed by me. Again, this is a picture, a picture of the cross. That's why he says in verse 7, what I'm doing now you don't understand. Afterwards you will understand. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Not just if I don't wash your feet, but if I don't wash you at the cross, where this is pointing. All of us need Jesus to wash us at the cross. But his foot washing and the crucifixion it points to sets the standard for our love. And I just want to spend some time reflecting on how Jesus could actually do that on the kind of love he showed in the foot washing and at the cross. Just think who it is 
whose feet it is he's washing. There are 12 pairs of feet in the room. One pair he knows is about to betray him. He does it before Judas goes out. Ten more pairs he knows are going to run away when the pressure's on. The final pair, Peter, those feet will be standing in a courtyard before the night's out. And standing there, he will deny ever knowing Jesus three times and never knew him. Jesus knows all that. He already knows it. And still, he grabs the towel, gets on his knees and serves them. It's extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary love. Loving the unlovable. And if we think that's extraordinary, just think of the cross it points to. When the king of glory so loved the world that he came and died on a cross that we might be clean. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you, just as I've loved you, you're to love one another. Sometimes in marriage prep, we say to husbands from Ephesians 5, do you know you're supposed to love your wife as the church? Which means, husbands, if you're ever thinking, but today she doesn't deserve my love, the way she treats me. Well, that's not an excuse. We didn't deserve Jesus to love us, and he did. We say that to husbands, and sometimes some of us will sit there and think, oh, I'm glad I'm not a husband. Um, But actually, Jesus says that is the standard across the board. Love each other as I've loved you. Loving the unlovable and undeserving. Secondly, just think of the humility Jesus showed. Let me read that from verse 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Extraordinary humility for the Lord of the universe to dress like a slave and wash some feet. Feet that he'd made. Mucky with the dirt that he'd designed. And you think the foot washing's extraordinary, Peter did, but it points to the cross, which is far more extraordinary. Just think of it, the creator of life submitting himself to death on a cross. The king of kings submitting himself to Roman invaders. The judge of all the world standing through a fake sham trial, a travesty of justice, and not raising an objection. The one who deserves all the honor and glory being stripped naked blindfolded and blasphemed. The saviour of the world being mocked with people saying, you can't even save yourself. That's how weak you are. Extraordinary. That's how he loves us. And, And so if you ever find yourself thinking in terms of loving others, if you ever think, I'm above this, I'm above this job, or I'm above this person, I shouldn't have to do this, I shouldn't have to take that, I... Shouldn't have to keep loving this person when they talk to me like that. I shouldn't have to keep serving this way when I don't get the credit I deserve. I'm giving up so much for the gospel, for the church. Don't you know who I am? If that ever comes into our hearts, 
Well, the Lord Jesus knew who he was. Look at chapter 13, verse 3. It's extraordinary. Jesus, 13, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he came from God and was going back to God, he knew that he held everything in his hands, people's eternity. He was the judge of all the earth. And yet the next thing his hands did was grab a towel, grab a basin, and wash people's feet. It's extraordinary. And again, that's the picture. The bigger thing's even bigger. Sorry, the cross is even bigger. Sometimes, you know, you get those TV programs where CEOs kind of slum it for a few hours when the cameras are watching. They're kind of down on the, the floor packing boxes or something. But you know, as soon as the camera switches off, they're back in the penthouse for some me time. The Lord Jesus, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Loved them all the way to the cross. Sacrificed himself for them. That's what Jesus' love looks like. Greater love has no one than this, that he'd lay down his life for his friend. How do you know the shepherd is a good shepherd? Because he loves the sheep enough to die for them. And that's our big point. We're to love each other the way Jesus has loved us. If you want to grow in that, chapter 13 is a great place to just spend time chewing. And the passion narratives, even better, will be there when we get, them, get to them in Easter. I think it's a great thing to be hearing this at the start of a year as a church family. There's lots of exciting projects ahead. We'll hear more about them on the 20th at the Vision Day all sorts of ideas, all sorts of reaching out with the gospel that we're going to be doing. Hopefully we will grow more and more into disciple makers and more and more into the pillar and buttress of God's truth to a watching world. But let's never be a church that lacks love as we do it. I'm really encouraged, actually, that often people's comment who visit Chalmers or just come in for first couple of visits is, we're really warm, we're really warm, welcoming. And that's wonderful, let's keep, keep that up. But actually, loving newcomers is, is one thing. Don't really know them, they always seem quite nice. But loving people we properly know, with all the friction and the bumps and scrapes along the way, that's what can hurt. Love that perseveres. Love when people have disappointed us. Love when people have wronged us. Love when people don't treat us well. Whatever the reasons. You see, the church is a place where people who would never stick together in any other social context are glued together by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And as our friends and families and colleagues and neighbours see that kind of love, this kind of out-of-this-world love, the love that, that loves even though it's undeserving, well, that's when they'll know we're disciples of the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us like that. That's our big point done. In a moment, I'll conclude with some practical tips very briefly, but just before we finish, there are a couple of reactions that, that John gives us in this passage from verses 36 to 14.3. We'll only look at them very briefly, but I do want to look at them because I think they capture two reactions we might have to this big command. One is Peter's reaction, Peter's kind of confident reaction. He seems to get that, that 
Jesus is putting this big challenge in front of us. And, and Peter says, right, that's it. I'm ready to go with you. I'm ready to lay down my life for you. And just look at Jesus' answer in verse 38. <laughs> Will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? You think you've got it in you to go where I'm going and to, to share my example to do what I'm going to do? You think you've got it in you naturally by nature? Peter, in a few hours, you won't even admit you know me. That's how strong you are by yourself, how much love you have in your heart by yourself. In a few hours, you'll need me to die for you more than ever. And I don't know if we've got any Peter types here. Um, Just possible to hear the big command in 34 and think, brilliant, I can put that on my to-do list. I'm ready to go. I can do this one. Just try hard. Fresh New Year, January. Anything's possible in January. Um, Think actually, particularly if you're not a Christian, if you're looking in on Christianity, there's a real danger that you can think this is what the message is. Basically, follow Jesus' example. Sometimes people will say that, but the heart of, Jesus, uh, heart of Christianity is Jesus is loving, we should be loving. That's not the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is we need Jesus to die for us. We need Jesus to love us first. Remember what he said to Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. That's where we start. And then once washed by the cross, we can have God, uh, Jesus sent his spirit into our hearts who then can help us love this kind of way. So that's the first reaction. If, if you feel like I'm ready to lay my life down, Jesus say, would start saying, I need to die for you before you even think about laying your life down in my service. But there's a second reaction here, and I think it's probably the more common reaction amongst God's people. It's the reaction of feeling slightly panicked. Panicked at the thought of Jesus going away physically, of course, but also just panicked at the scale of that command. And I think that's why chapter 14 starts, let not your hearts be troubled. We'll see a lot more of this next week, but I'll read the first few verses. Chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. It's a great reassurance. Don't be overwhelmed. Rest assured, I will love you right to the end. I'm going to prepare a place for you in eternity, and I will come back to take you there. So this is the freedom of a Christian. Our eternal place does not rest on the quality of my love for you or your love for me. Our love performance is not what's opening the door to eternity. Jesus' love is what will take us to eternity. And in the meantime, lovingly, he gives us his spirit to keep growing in love, to keep transforming. So from start, Jesus must love us on the cross. To end, Jesus loves us enough to come back and get us. And all the way through, Jesus, by his spirit, is changing our hearts to love like he's loved us. It's his love performance, not mine, that will get us there. That's a huge relief for me. I don't know how your Christmas was, what kind of 
mood you're coming back to church, church life and church service in. Maybe some of us couldn't wait, get wait, couldn't wait to get started again. Um, just let me at them. I want to love them. But maybe, maybe some of us are feeling weary because it's hard to love people sacrificially. It's costly. It's painful. It, it, it takes time. It takes energy. And especially when we love those who are unlovable, those who are hard work amongst us, or when we step into situations that are costly, difficult, complex, when we love with humility, when we love with self-sacrifice, it's costly. And if you want to grow in loving the way Jesus has loved us. I don't think there's some special trick or kind of magic formula. Um, I thought I must be practical in my conclusion, so I did a box. But really, what's in the box is no magic formula. It's just reflect on Jesus' love. Think about it. Chew on it. Dwell on it. Read through chapter 13 again. The one practical thing is actually, I think often Jesus helps us love as we get loving, as we get serving. So pick up a towel. Start trying to love those who are unlike me or those who are hard work. And perhaps for some of us, that will be starting the year by restarting some relationships that we've allowed to just drift or fester, where there's unresolved sin or unresolved bitterness. It may well be that the first step is to pray and go to someone and talk to them for the first time in a while. But of course, only Jesus can give us the strength we need for that kind of costly love. So let me pray as we close. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. We praise you, Father, that your glory shines most brightly at the cross of Calvary. And we praise you for your love. It is glorious, glorious love. Love that you've shown us, though we didn't deserve it. Love that you've shown us, though you are far above us. We praise you for the love of the Lord Jesus, that he would humble himself, even take on the form of a slave, even humble himself to the cross. And we do so pray, Lord, that this would be a church family that's characterized by that kind of love. Please help us where our hearts are a bit cold or weary. Please, by your spirit, stir up our love for others as we reflect on your love for us. And Father, we pray that people would notice. We pray as Jesus expects here, that as we love one another, as he's loved us, that that would be a witness to the watching world. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.